0: As we open God's Word, we are opening back into 1 Peter. If you were with us last week, we took a slight detour uh, just to step aside for one week. As Phil talked us through, we, we captured, we used this cultural moment uh, of the Asbury revival and what was happening at colleges uh, across the nation to speak into what God states revival is all about that it's about repentance, that it's about us rejoicing in the presence of His people. But, but the revival, these mountaintop experiences, aren't always the goal. And so, so Phil called us to realize that, that um, now I'm forgetting the word. Revival isn't the goal. Who was here last week? What's the word? Restoration. Restoration thank you. Restoration. I knew it was an R. I just can't remember which one. Restoration is the goal, not revival. And that that looks different. It comes in different shapes and sizes. So I've been praying as you have gone through this week that you have experienced Revival. That you have experienced restoration, and even if it doesn't look like a huge concert or coming together in in a huge mass gathering, even if it doesn't look like you want revival to look like sometimes, I pray that you've been transformed in his presence and have recognized what he's doing. Anybody recognize it this week? Yeah, amen. All right. Well, and we have more to be restored in us, don't we? We have more to be restored in us, so we're going to get into uh 1st Peter chapter 3 this morning. Some of you who uh anybody reading ahead? How many of you are reading ahead? Some of you, some of you uh, a few of you read into 1st Peter 3. So you know you know some of some of what we're going to deal with this morning is challenging verses. Those of you who don't know, buckle up. But let's uh before we do any of that, we need prayer, right? All right. So let's put, let's go before God. Lord Jesus, we love you. As we open your word, we uh, gosh, this Word has come up this morning, surrender. We want to surrender our will and our ways to you. We we believe these words, that you have the words of life, Lord. So where else are we going to go? Even when it's uncomfortable, even when we don't like what it says, even when we'd rather not pay attention? God, you have the words of life. And so we come to you, and we submit ourselves to you, And we rest in you, Jesus, knowing that your ways are best, and your ways are higher than ours. Your thoughts are best, God, and your thoughts are higher than ours. So God, as we receive from your word today, I pray that we might receive it with joy and gladness, even where it's challenging. I pray that we might recognize your goodness, even if it doesn't feel good all the time. God, change us in the process. I thank you that you rescued us to not leave us the same. To not just leave us in the mess we were and just clean us up a little bit. You rescued us to transform us into the people you always intended us to be. So take a step this morning, Lord, and work transformation in us. And we will thank you for it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, first, first Peter, chapter three. Uh, something Phil said before we started, or I think the very first week of this series, he said, "Context changes content. Context changes content." And so, there can be passages like one of the ones we're going to visit today, maybe the whole chapter. We are going through the whole chapter today, but there will be passages like the ones we enter today that have been pulled out of context, and we apply all over the place to our lives in ways that God maybe never intended. And and we need to look at the context both of Scripture and of that culture to begin to understand what Peter and what the Holy Spirit through Peter says, is is saying to the church. And if we don't understand the context of where we're going, we can apply these words according to our understanding, not the Holy Spirit's understanding. And then then we'll find them challenging, but not in the right ways. And so my prayer this morning is that we'd be challenged in the right ways, and I believe to do that, before we get to chapter 3, I'm going to step back just a few verses to chapter 2. The end of chapter 2, it says this, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So listen, as as Peter has walked through his letter, he's speaking to Christians who are suffering, who are under persecution, who are going through trials. And they're saying, how are we going to do this? How are we going to walk through this? And he keeps coming back. He keeps circling around two distinct themes, probably more, but two I'm going to point out. One is that he says, as you go through difficult things, as you go through suffering, persecution, and experience challenging times, know this, Christ has gone before you. You're following him. All right, all right, so it's like I prayed already this morning. I meant to say it now. I prayed it earlier. But like Christ went to heaven and to glory, but the way there was through the cross. And so as we go through difficult times and difficult things, we've got to know we're following him. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And here's the example he left. Here's how he walked through difficult circumstances. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, here's what he did. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So Peter says you're following the example of Christ when you go through difficult times. And this, and one other thing that I want to stress here that Peter stresses, is that you go through it for a purpose. So, so Jesus was obedient. He was obedient to suffering and even unto death. And if, if it was just for obedience sake, if it was just to be obedient to God, that would be enough, right? I mean, be, being obedient to God is, is enough. That's the best way. That's the, the only way, the way we're designed to be. If that was it, that would be enough. But God also worked a purpose through that. God worked a purpose through that. Here's the purpose. He worked through Christ's suffering. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. There was a penalty because we sinned and we were in rebellion against a holy God and there was no way back. We had broken laws and when you break laws, when you break God's law, there's a penalty. When you break man's law, there's a penalty too. When you break God's law, it's steep. So there's a penalty due, do, and Christ took that on himself. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. That penalty has gone now. If you are in Christ, there is no penalty ahead of you. It's in the past, and Christ bore it, amen? So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, and you know what? There was even, even more of a purpose. Not just, He didn't just take care of the penalty of sin. He took care of the power of sin. So sin no longer has to reign in our mortal bodies, Paul says, That we can now die to sin and actually live in a way we were never able to live without Christ, live to righteousness. So he took care of the power of sin. For you were like sheep going astray. Uh, Sorry, I missed some important words. By his wounds, you have been healed. You've been healed. So listen, I don't have time to go here, but like people use this to talk about physical healing and because Christ died on the cross, all of our physical illnesses are taken care of. Listen, if that was true, no Christian would ever die of cancer. So I I think some of that is taken out of context. I don't have time to go there. But listen, what he healed was far more important than any physical illness. He healed our hearts. He He took out hearts of stone and replaced them with hearts of flesh that can be moved and touched by him. We need to have far more than a cure for any sickness, because that was our sickness. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He's a good shepherd, amen? He's worthy to be our overseer. He's the only one worthy. So his word is good, so Peter says this. As we go forward, here, here, here's what he's saying. Following in the way of Christ is an opportunity. We follow him in the way of suffering, of trials, of hardship, of difficulty, of challenges. We follow him, but it's an opportunity to join in the work of Christ. It's not just obedience for obedience sake. God even works more in that. God even works a purposes in that. And we see that come up again and again in our passage today. So 1 Peter Chapter 3. We're going to start, we're going to go through the whole chapter today. We're going to start with verses 1 through 7, and they say this Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth to God in God's sight. For in this way, the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, Be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So there can be two things true at the same time, right? Two things true at the same time. I believe firmly... That last week, Phil heard correctly from the Holy Spirit to use this as a cultural moment to shepherd us about what God would say about revival. So that's true, right? And is it possible he punted this one for me? Is it possible? Just like two at the same time. He could have punted this one, so thank you, Phil. I don't, I don't think he's here right now. punted this one to me. So i got to try not to fumble this one by the grace of God. And I pray nobody tackles me before the end, right? All right. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Before we get into the specifics here, I've got to say some things first. First, we've got to admit that this passage has been misused frequently, far too frequently, in our culture and in history. That this passage has been used in some ways to belittle women, To justify mistreatment of them, to silence them from being a voice in their own home, to threaten them. It's been used in this way by people who say they follow God. I need to tell you this morning, that is not the heart of our God. And that is not to be the heart of his followers. So the first thing we need to do is lay down all the ways that this passage has been misused and abused in the past. Because God's heart is not for any of that. His heart is good and his word is good. But people look at this passage and they say, well look, Peter's trying to belittle women. Just like they look at the passage that came before this in chapter 2 where he talks to slaves. And they say, well, Bible's (laughs) pro-slavery. Yeah. Well, let's keep in mind, folks, that that those who were abolitionists at the forefront of the anti-slavery movement in this country and every other country, those have primarily and first and foremost been believers in the Bible and the Word of God. Those who were at the forefront of many women's rights movements to bring justifiable and right and good equality for women in our society and in the home, those who have led and been at the forefront of that, many of them have been followers of Christ. And in both of those movements, they look to the word of God that states unequivocally that no matter race or color, we are all made in the image of God. That no matter male or female, we are all made in the image of God of equal worth, value, and dignity before him. And this word of God as it has worked out in our society in the good and the right and the healthy ways has brought an end to slavery in some ways. And we've got a long way to go in, in racial reconciliation, right? But huge steps have been taken because of those who follow his word. In women's rights, I'm not saying we're done, but like, listen, huge steps have been taken by those who follow in his word. And so let's, let's leave from our minds anyway that the Bible or Christianity is meant to diminish women. Do you know in AD 370, Emperor Valentinian had to issue a decree. And you know what it was? He told the Pope, stop sending missionaries to women's houses. Stop! Do you know why? Because women were coming to Christ in droves. Because they, it was there in the community of Christ and in the gospel of Jesus Christ that they found value and worth and dignity and were lifted up in ways that were unheard of in the society around them. And so they flocked to Christianity in droves, so much so that the emperor had to send a decree stop, stop preaching to women. They're coming too quick. This is, this is the gospel. This is what the gospel does. It doesn't leave any of us hindered. It doesn't leave any of us undignified. It doesn't diminish us, but rather lifts us up. So here's the other way we could go with this passage though. And and you know, as, as feminism has, has progressed through the decades, and, and we've In this season where ultra feminism has been uh, on the rise and and, and part of our media, there's ways that that movement would say, "Well, just throw it out. Like this is backward. It's part of some patriarchal society. Well, just throw throw this out." And and as we wrestled with this in our pastors' meeting this week, uh, you know, I was able by my brothers to be reminded, like that this this isn't God's heart either. His word is timeless, and so the truths here are timeless we hear things like submission and headship and we think well that was for a patriarchal society like hundreds of years ago we're much further advanced than that like we can get beyond that right chuck this well except paul he uses this language submission and headship he talks about that he says first and you got to remember this here's the context submit yourselves one to another he's not asking wives to do something that he's not asking husbands to do everybody's asked to submit first of all to Christ. And then he says, submit yourselves one to another. But then he uses this directly to wives. Submit wives to your husbands. He uses the language of headship for husbands. And here's the thing. You know how he justifies that? The reasoning he gives to that is not some cultural movement. He's not Like, well, it's just the day and age we live in, so do this. He says, it's not like, this is what works in my house, so you guys do this. That's not what he does. You know what he says? He says, do this because because marriage is a picture of the gospel. That's what he holds it to. Is the gospel still true? Is this still a picture and, and a way to conform our lives to the truth of God? Is this still what saves us? Yes, it's the gospel. And he says, marriage is a picture of the gospel. And so we can't throw these out as just a cultural. Paul says, no, gospel. So, so what does he mean? Y'all are real quiet. What is he going to say next? The Bible, when it talks about submission and headship, Recognizes equality, value, and worth between men and women. It does not diminish at all in dignity. And at the same time, it recognizes the different strengths and growth opportunities for each and the different roles that God would intend for them in places in life. This one in particular in the family. And so the Bible does not diminish worth at all while also recognizing the differences. Men and women are different, amen? They have different strengths, amen? I, I've got different strengths than my wife. Some of those because she is a woman. I've got different strengths than her. And some of those because I am a man. The Bible recognizes those without diminishment of either. And so when we talk about submission and the headship, here's the, here's the thing. When we talk about it, we think of org charts, right? We think this is about, we hear submission, we hear headship, and we think this is about power. Well, Eve was brought along and she was called Adam's helper, so it's kind of like he's district manager and she's assistant to the district manager, right? <laughs> Listen, submission and headship is not about power. It's about responsibility. In our married relationship, there's a way when I, when I did my wife, I want to come alongside her and protect her I wanted to bring my strength to bear on her behalf. I want to lead us in ways that God has designed in me as a man to do. Men, God has designed us in ways to be a provider, protector, leader in our homes. And, and on behalf of our wives. And headship then is not about power or final decision making authority. It's not about getting your wa- uh, clothes washed. It's not about getting your meals cooked or your sexual desires fulfilled. It's not about any of that. Headship is about responsibility for your wife and your household. It's about being the first to step forward and lay down your life. That's what headship is. And so women's mission is not about unblinking obedience. It's not being about being silent in your home. Rather, it's about a voluntary recognition of godly authority in your life and in the home. It's about respecting and cultivating the way that your husband is wired as he respects and cultivates the way you are wired. Now, if we hold back that respect and cultivation of each other until the other one does their part, when's it ever going to get done? So, So we each, men and women alike, need to step forward in this. So, that's why he says this one more thing before I go on. Paul said this was a picture of the gospel. That's what marriage is. It's a picture of the gospel, which is why I want to recognize that there are those among us who are single, who have been married and aren't any longer those who aren't married yet and desire so much to be, and you're thinking the things for the next twenty minutes, it's gonna be like not, I'm just gonna tune out. Well, no, like marriage, marriage isn't about marriage. Marriage is about the gospel. That's why this applies to all of us. So while I, I, I'm applying this to in in marriage settings, marriage is a picture of the gospel, and that's what we can all glean from this. The language that Peter uses here is specifically. Wives to their husbands and husbands to their wives. It's not about women in any other part of society. It's about this. As we carry this forward, we recognize the truth of the gospel and we all glean from it. Because the church isn't here just to support healthy marriage. Marriage is here to be a picture of the gospel. Okay. Wives, in the same way, in the same way as what? In the same way as who? In the same way as Christ? That's who we just talked about. Those are those verses I shared from chapter 2. In the same way as Christ lived a life of submission to his heavenly father, lived a life of submission under earthly governments that he was placed under, lived a life of submission. Not, not when it was asked him to do anything contrary to God's law. It did not supersede the voice of his father. But in following the voice of his father, Christ lived a life of submission. And so should we all. And so wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. But it's not just obedience for obedience sake. It's not just obedience to God for obedience sake. There's a purpose in this. So that if any of them do not believe the word, that they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Peter's saying there's a purpose here. See, the the women he was speaking to, they were in a more difficult situation even than women just in that culture in general. They were married, and they came to Christ first, and their husbands hadn't come come to Christ yet. And they're wondering how to do this thing, and that's a reasonable question, because in that society, the patriarch, the male head of the house, he... He was the one, whatever God he worshipped, that's what God everybody else worshipped. That's why when, he, when you read in the book of Acts and Cornelius asked Peter to come preach to him, he brings his whole household together. And the idea is not that he went to each one individually, slave and free person and kids and wife, and said, hey, God, and he didn't preach to them individually. Maybe he did. But, but he called in that society, he called them all together and said, hey, I'm coming to Christ and my whole household, they're coming with me. And so there, there was this natural following of whoever, whoever the husband worshipped, whoever the father worshipped, that's who the whole household worships. And so these women come to Christ, and their husbands haven't come yet, and they say, what do we do? Are we supposed to get divorced? Are we supposed to, are we supposed to I mean, we, we know the truth. We're worshiping the one true God. So Should we start getting louder about our faith? What do we do in this? And Peter says, Peter says this, submission is an opportunity to draw your husband to Jesus. See, it's following in the way of Christ, but for a purpose, too, that it's a way to draw your husband to Jesus. So, it's a way to draw your husband to Jesus, he says, without words. Without words. A way to win them without words. Words. Have you ever met people that try to win you with words? And they know you're right, and they know they're right, and they know you're wrong, and they tell you, again, and 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 again. You're like, stop, right? I have this. um, There's this gutter on my house, and when it rains, it can be the middle of the night, and it rains, and you're like, "That's so great when it rains when you're going to sleep, isn't it? Isn't it great when it rains?" And it is. But then there's this drip that comes from this gutter on the second floor. And I don't know where it drips. If I did, it wouldn't do it anymore. But I don't know where it drips onto, but it drips onto this place where it's, I'm inside, the windows are closed, and it sounds like this. And there's the gentle pitter-patter of rain. And then there's this again and again and again and again and again. Hang with me here. Don't walk out. The Bible says a nagging wife, oof, yeah, the Bible says a nagging wife is like the drops of rain that come off the roof during a storm. I'm not saying all women are talkers, I'm not saying that no men are talkers. I'm speaking to the passage. Why would he tell women that that, that they could win their husbands without words? Because sometimes in some ways ladies, you have a tendency to try to win us with words. No husband is nodding their head right now. You guys are wise. Yep, put it all on me. I can take it. I can take it. I want to has anybody ever been won to the gospel? However, you came to the gospel, I, I, I want to nearly, I don't know your story, but I can almost guarantee you weren't argued into the gospel. When, when you are motivated to drop to your knees and pray before God, I can almost guarantee it's not because you were nagged into doing it. And Peter says to these women, he says, don't go into your home and raise a big stink and try to lead a different way. He says, yes, follow Jesus Christ. Worship him alone. And walk with your husbands under their authority, under their protection, under their responsibility. I didn't say power. I said under their responsibility as you are called to. As you were called, that you may win them without words. Don't be getting snagged into heaven. Listen, I've had seasons where my wife has been farther along spiritually than I have. I've known many other marriages. Guys, I don't know why this is. Ladies, I, well, there's reasons we could go into. I don't have time. But there's been many marriages, right, where, where the women in so, woman in some way in some seasons has been further along spiritually than the man. There's been seasons like that in my own marriage. Do you know Rach has not battered me into into following Jesus? She's not nagged and nagged and nagged. You know what she's done first and foremost? She sought Jesus like crazy. I gotta tell you, it's beautiful to see. And then she'll come to me and say, I see this. Do you see this? She'll do this about non-spiritual things. To, well, everything's spiritual. But she'll do this about family matters too. Things with the kids, things in other areas of our home. Like, She'll come to me and say, "Do you, I see this. Do you see this? I think we need to go a different direction. Do you think we need to go a different direction? And I can disagree with her. And she disagrees with me. And we, we go back and forth. Sometimes it's an argument. Most of the time not. Because there's things she sees that I don't see. Look at this This is a big water bottle, isn't it? I have this reputation around my house. I can never find this thing. It's bright, it's huge, it's like 32 ounces, and I can never find this thing. Rachel always knows where it is. I don't know how you ladies do that, but men, let's face it, we have a reputation. Our wives, women in our lives can see things that we don't see. Bring it to them, but bring it with love, bring it with respect, bring it with honor, because husbands are wired to want to step forward, to want to be first in line, to take a bullet for the ones they love. So so bring the bullet to them and show them this is what's decimating this season. Can Can you see it? Because listen, our culture has this propensity to treat the husband, the father in the home, like just another kid, don't they? Don't they? I mean, it's like just an extra kid, and you got you, you to like scold him too, and, and, and wives and moms are forced to step it up and scold him and correct him just like the kids, and treat him just like another kid in the house. Now, now, men, we got to own, why, why could that be if you're sitting there five hours a day playing video games, maybe it's because you're acting like a 12-year-old and you need to be called out of that. There are going to be reasons for some of these stereotypes, right? And do you look at your husband as not a stereotype, ladies, but a son of the living God who's called to lead and protect provide for you and wants to do it. The best part of him wants to do it. The God-designed part of him wants to do it. Do you go to him presenting him with that dignity? I've gone to Rach with tough stuff. And you know what I can say? She has never, ever felt, made me feel diminished in our marriage. I went to her early on in our... Yeah, we'll go here. I I went to her early on in marriage, first or second year in our marriage, and I had to confess to her that I had brought pornography into our marriage. She wept, and she was brokenhearted. You know what she said to me? I know that's not who you are. Women, your, your husbands might be able to list off, probably can list off, five, 10, 15 ways, 50 ways that they're not walking like they should, that they're not meeting your expectations, that they need to do better. Ladies, you have eyes for that. Bring it, but bring it with love. And l- listen, do they know... Do they know the two, the ten, the, the fifteen ways that they're walking in the strength that God gave them? Do, do they know that? Do they, do they hear that as often as they hear the other? Do they? Like, we'll talk to husbands in a minute. Ladies, I know this is heavy. I know I'm a guy. I know this is weird. Like, I'll talk to husbands in a minute. Like, do they know? Are, are, are you pointing out the image of Christ in them? Are you telling them their identity of who they are in Christ? Or is it something different? And so this is, all all of this, all of this that Peter says next flows out of this. And, and we're going to go through this super quick. Your, your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles or wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. He's not telling women to be silent. He's not saying don't wear makeup or braid your hair. He, listen, he's saying, ladies, you're, you're beauty. you want to be beautiful. You want to be found Beautiful. And so you spend a lot of time dressing you up. You, you do a great job. You look great. But listen, he, he says, don't spend all the time on the externals without spending time on the internals. And, and he says, actually, this beauty is worth more. Why? Because it's unfading. It's eternal. Are you spending all the time on the externals without spending any time on the eternals? It's going to show in your life. Are you spending time on the ed- eternals? Like they're even more important than the externals. It is going to show in your life. Listen, I need to say this. Ladies, like I know this is, this is coming down hard. This is heavy stuff. Like some of you in this room, I know some of you, there's others out of you I don't know. Some of you in this room are doing amazing at this. You're walking, imitating Christ in your marriages and in your families. And you're doing amazing. Husbands, do they know it? Have you told them lately? Go home and do that. In whatever way they're doing well, go home and do that. For this is the way holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. I don't have time to go here fully, but listen. Like we, we hear this verse and we think, oh gosh, here it goes. Like Sarah like had to bend over backwards to serve Abraham and wash his feet and do all sorts of other stuff. And this is what we imagine, right? When he refers to Sarah, that's what we imagine the relationship is. Here's homework for you. Go Genesis 18, look it up when you get home. It's the only time in Scripture, the only time in Scripture, that Sarah calls Abraham Lord. It's the only time. You know what happens is when three visitors come to visit Abraham, and they're heavenly visitors. One of them is in some way God Almighty in the flesh, maybe a pre-incarnate Christ, some people think. But the Lord himself comes and two angels with him. And Abraham says, sit down, like, I'm going I'm to get you some food, like, wait here. And he goes in and he instructs, Sarah, can you, like, make some stuff and bring it out? And they do, and, and she does, and they do, and they, they feed him and everything. And then one of the things the Lord tells him in the course of the conversation is, listen, I'm going to come back next year, and you are going to have a kid. And Sarah is listening in the tent. And she laughs, and she says, really? 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 Am, am, Am I going to have this pleasure? My Lord and I, are we going to have this pleasure now that we're old? Does that sound like it's unblinking servanthood, obedience of a beaten down wife? No, it's a woman who's recognizing we have been through a lot. I've walked with Abraham since since God called him to a, a land that he was going to show us later on. I've walked with Abraham down to Egypt where he screwed up and pretended I was his sister, the jerk. I walked with Abraham when I screwed up and sent Hagar into his tent. We've walked together for 25 years waiting on a promise to be fulfilled. My Lord and I, we've walked together. walked with him. This isn't a beaten down wife. This is a woman who walks honoring the godly authority of her husband. How he's wired and speaks to that. Speaks to it. Doesn't stay quiet. <sighs> Alright, we got to move on. I hope I've said enough. You can tackle me later. Husbands, let's go. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate of your wives. One, one translation says, Live with understanding with them. Husbands, are you living with understanding with your wives? As the one who is spiritually to be out in front, are you living with understanding? Are you, as the one spiritually who wants to be a protector, who wants to take a bullet for your wife? Are, are you living with understanding for their struggles, their challenges, and their strengths? Are you living with understanding with them? Do you know when Rachel and I dated, we? Our first date, we, we scheduled to take a hike because a hike is like, you can take a hike, you go together, you're doing something together, you don't maybe have to be talking all the time, right? And you come back and you each get in your separate cars, you meet there, you get in your separate cars and you leave, right? Can be like, and, and you can just like, one or the other can like, hey, let's turn around, you know, <laughs> enjoy this time, let's turn around, let's go back to the cars, right? Uh, we, we took a four-hour hike, our first date. And then we got back to our cars and we didn't go separate ways. We went to, went to Payway for dinner. Spent another couple hours getting dinner together. It was like a six-hour date. Six hours. And I couldn't get enough. I said, like, I, I, I want more. I want to know who you are. I want to know your strengths, your weaknesses, your loves, your dreams, your desires. I want to know more. Now, if you told me today, I want you to go six hours, eight hours, and have a date with your wife. I'd be like, eight hours? What are we going to do? No. That's my brokenness, by the way. Like like husbands, listen to me. Like, what happened to us? Right? I mean, these, these beauties that we married that we couldn't get enough of and we just wanted to understand more and more and more. And somewhere life got in the way and, and we forgot the treasure they are. We forgot there's new facets to them. Like a, like a jewel where there's... Facet after facet after facet. And every every way you turn in the light, it, it shines a different way. We've forgotten that about our wives. Our wives are not the same women we married, right? They are not the same women we married. Do we seek as much to understand the woman today that we did five or ten or fifteen years ago that we were dating? Are we living with understanding for their strengths, for their weaknesses, for the ways to walk alongside them and lead them? Or are we showing them who they are in Christ? I don't believe that about yourself. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Here's who you are in Christ. Are you living with them with understanding? Do you know their li- the lies they believe enough to speak truth to them? Man, maybe that's the best way we as husbands can lead our wives spiritually, what lies do you believe in today? What do you believe in today? Oh, let me, let me speak the gospel into that. That's not who you are. Are we living with them with understanding? And treat them with respect as the weaker partner. So this one gets a bad rap too. The weaker vessel, some translations say. This word partner, this word vessel. It's, it's, it's the word for container. I think, there he goes bashing women. Listen, it's, it's used... I think all but one time, maybe every time in the scripture, to refer to our physical bodies. Women in general, I know there's some of you, don't don't come up after service and try to, uh, ladies, and try to arm wrestle me, okay? Like improved, I know, like some of you could take me. But in general, women physically are less strong than men. Men, are you walking aware of that? Are you walking aware uh, and loving your wives well in that? I, I shared some statistics a, a few weeks back that, that half of, uh, no, one, one in every three women experiences physical abuse from their partner in their lifetime. One in three women. Men, do you know, you are strong. Do not take a hand in any way to your wife That is not God's heart for her. That is not to be your heart for her. Our voices, our physicality, even if we don't touch our wives, our our, our physicality can can be intimidating to people. In a back alley, walking through the city streets, you better hope it's intimidating to people. better hope they mistake me for uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger or something when I'm walking through a dark alley. I want to be intimidating. If I walk into my home and I want that same intimidation... That is from the pit of hell. Do not walk in your home to intimidate in any way, your wife or your kids in any way. If that's happened in the past, oh, listen. I've gotten. Angry. I, I used to do this thing. I when I got mad at my kids, I wouldn't. I wouldn't touch it, but I would. I would clap. They hate it. They're over there. They hate it. Like as you hated that, right? It's been a while since I've done that. I was even the smallest way. I was using physical intimidation some way to power up. Men, our, non- our job is not to power up. It's to lay ourselves down. That's the way you lead. That's the way you lead like Christ. <sighs> Treat them with honor as the weaker vessel, not mentally, not spiritually, physically, as the weaker vessel. And as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers as heirs with you, as eagles to this. Husbands, like living this way, sacrifice, leading this way is an opportunity to prepare your wife for eternity. That's how it says Jesus loves the church. Paul in Ephesians, he washes the church by the water of the word to make her beautiful without spot or blemish. Husbands, as we sacrifice for our wives, it's an opportunity to prepare her as a, as a co-heir with us for the eternity that's ahead. Here's what I gotta say before we move on. Men, some, I know some of you in this room. There's others of you I don't know in this room. Some of us are walking this well. I hope I'm walking this well. Some of you are walking this well. Some of you are walking this well. Thank you. Wives, does he know it? (laughs) If your husband is one of those, does he know it, that he's walking this well? And whatever way he is, not perfectly, we don't do it perfectly. Does he know it? Finally, Peter says, and he is a true pastor, let me tell you. (laughs) He has said all he said in two and a half chapters, and he says, finally, and he goes on for another two and a half chapters. We've gone through seven verses of a 22-verse chapter. I want to say to you, finally, now we're not going to go on for another 45 minutes, but hang with me. There's a little bit of little bit other places to go. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do you see how everything I've been talking about flows out of this? Everything I've been talking about for wives, for husbands, it flows out of this. Are we humble with each other? But but Peter says this, now now carry this out, this is for all of us, all of y'all. Single, married, whatever, this is everybody. Whatever responsibilities that you have, whatever position you have, all of you, are you walking humbly, like-minded, sympathetic, compassionate, love one another? And we go through these lists and we scoot by them and I'm about to scoot by it because I'm I'm not going to say much more about this, but uh, like we scoot by these little lists in Scripture. We think, oh yeah, yeah, that's good stuff we're supposed to do. Like, Here's what I would encourage you to do. Anytime you see a list like this, I'd encourage you today to go home with this list right here. These five things. At the end of today, sit with this list. It's only five things. Sit with this list and with the Holy Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit, in what ways today did I have an opportunity to be like-minded, to love, to be compassionate, to be humble? And and this is hard work because we start to do this and out of the busyness of our day, we sit there and it's like, I don't know, I didn't have anything. Well, that probably means you miss some opportunities. I've done that. When I do, the, do this, it, I, I can't think of a thing the first day. You know what I have to do? I pray, Jesus, help me do better the ne- next day. I don't know what I did today that looked like this. Help me do better the next day. And then you know what I do the next day, evening? I look at this list. And maybe today, maybe it was forefront of friend my mind, and maybe now I can think of one thing. I, I can think of one way I was compassionate, and I stepped up. And I can look at one way, oh, I could have been humble, and I wasn't. And do it again and again and again for a week or two and allow the Holy Spirit to use that to transform you. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So that you may inherit a blessing. Isn't it incredible that he says to this you were called? We look at trials and sufferings and difficulties. And this is times of persecution where people are experiencing evil. Have you ever been betrayed? And we think what possible good could come out of this? What possible blessing could come out of this? And I'll tell you what blessing could come out of this. Put somebody in their place. That's the blessing that can come out of this. Show somebody how right I am, how wrong they are prove it to them. That's the blessing. And, and Peter is saying to us, no, 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 no. Receiving wrongs, when you receive wrongs, no, it's an opportunity to receive greater blessing. Greater blessing. Do you know there's a greater blessing than you being proved right? Do you know there's a greater blessing than somebody else being put in their place? Oh man, if we as followers of Christ walked this way, walked this way with the world, we might be able to win them without words, folks. There's an opportunity to receive a a greater blessing. It starts in our minds and our hearts, though. When somebody betrays us, when somebody does us wrong, don't you you take it in and you start to have that fake conversation with them? Start to tell them off? Tell them what for? Now listen, if you've got an option between doing that on the inside or the outside, do do it on the inside. Good choice. But listen, eventually... You need to mature on the inside. Eventually, you need to get past that on the inside. Eventually, you need to sit with that in Jesus and allow him to walk you through a path of forgiveness. And that's hard work. And that's, that's long work. I'm not saying it in instantaneous. I'm just saying don't stay there because when you receive wrongs, it's an opportunity to receive a greater Blessing. And he goes on in the same way, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. He says, when you receive wrongs, have in mind the greater blessing, just like Christ did. How did we read this earlier. When he, they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's how Christ walked through that. So as you follow him, That's how how you set him. When, When others are doing you wrong, that's how you set him as Lord in your hearts. You entrust yourself to him who judges justly as the Lord in your hearts. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Do this because it's following Christ. But listen, there's a purpose to it. It's not just following Christ, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. He says, listen, as you live like Christ, as you respond to suffering like Christ did, as you respond to persecution like Christ did, there's going to be opportunity. for there, People are going to come to you and say, well, how do you walk through this hopeful how do you walk through this with still some joy left in your heart? And, and you're going to have an opportunity to share your hope. And sharing your hope is an opportunity to silence those accusations. That's what you wanted in the first place, isn't it? So look, there's, there's tons of places I could go that I don't have time to for these last two points. right? Sharing our hope is an opportunity to silence accusations. Receiving wrongs is an opportunity to receive greater blessings. I want to, I want to go to one example it's happened several years back that uh, Dan Cathy was, the president, uh, was, maybe still is, the president of Chick-fil-A. And he uh, was asked in an interview by a reporter um, what his views were of gay marriage. And he said, well, uh, I, I believe the Bible and I follow the Bible. And uh, according to the Bible, I believe that a, a marriage is between one man and one woman. By the way, that's what we believe here. A marriage is between one man... And one woman, if you're here and you believe differently than that, or maybe you're walking differently than that, maybe you're watching online, listen, we love you. We're glad you're here. I'm so grateful you're here, and I I hope you can see a little bit this morning the beauty of the gospel. But I also want to say that according to God's word, that that, that we believe it it says that marriage is between a man and a woman. And so in that area of your life, I, I challenge you to bring that before God and before others. But I'm glad you're here too. It's a good place to be, opening God's word and learning to follow him. So Dan Cathy said this to the reporter, marriage is between a man and a woman, and he got blasted for it. The media went after him, LBGTQ plus groups went after him, protested, there were marches outside of Chick-fil-A's, all over the place. And then, um, Dan Cathy's supporters, probably most of them evangelical Christians, right? They said, well, this isn't right. We're going to go buy chicken sandwiches to support Dan Cathy. And so they made Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day, and it was like a protest against a protest. And they went they bought, they bought hundreds of thousands of chicken sandwiches because the media wasn't and because all these other groups weren't. But what I found interesting is how Dan Cathy responded. You know, he did not participate or join in or affirm the protest against the protest at all. He didn't, he didn't do any of that with Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day. That was all, like, outside the company that that was happening. You know what he did instead? Instead, he quietly approached one of his strongest critics, a guy named Shane Windemeyer, who was a leader in a, a group called Campus Pride. He's a gay activist. And then Dan Cathy reached out to him, and eventually Shane Windemeyer wrote an essay to the Huffington Post in which he shared this. It is not often that people with deeply held and completely opposing viewpoints actually risk sitting down and listening to one another. We see this failure to listen and learn in our government, in our communities, and in our own families. Dan, Kathy, and I would, together, try to do better than each of us had experienced before. He says never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask ask for Campus Pride to stop protesting Chick-fil-A. On the contrary, Dan listened intently to our concerns and he sought first to understand not to be understood. Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication and built trust. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. You hear that? respect, honor, seeking to understand first rather than being understood. All alongside no apology for his beliefs. The two can work together. And it resulted in gay activist Sean Windemeyer writing the Huffington Post and essentially defending Dan Cathy's character. Sharing your hope is an opportunity to silence accusations. Can you imagine if we carried ourselves the way Dan Cathy did? When we interacted on social media? When we interacted with our political opponents? When we had conversations with our family who were completely on the end of whatever spectrum we're thinking about at the time? What an opportunity this, Sean. All right, one more place. We're almost done, I promise. One more place. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. See, this is the way of Christ again. Following the way of Christ, and here's the purpose, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So, (laughs) Martin Luther called these verses some of the most obscure in the New Testament. Hundreds of years ago, he wrote, I have no idea what Peter meant by these. I'm not going to solve this today. So there's a lot of theories going around. Go dig into them yourself. Here's here the point. Here's why I think Peter is bringing them up. He says, Jesus went and made proclamation. That word is not evangelism. He's not preaching the gospel. He went and made proclamation to whoever he was making proclamation to. I'm not going to, yeah. Go, go hunting for yourself. He went and made proclamation of his victory. This was after he died, after he had risen again, but not yet risen again in the body apparently. He made proclamation. He go and said, guess what, guys? (laughs) Those insults you hurled at me, look at me now. Those threats, those accusations, I'm back. And it wasn't like, stick it to your face. It's just, I won. Everything I said was true. And and this was Jesus' victory lap. Do you know what a victory lap is? I'm not a NASCAR fan, but a victory lap, at least in, in NASCAR, they do—they do, they drive 500 miles in the Daytona 500. And do you know what the winner does after the end of the race? When he wins, he crosses that finish line. Do you know what he does? He doesn't stop driving. He drives another lap. It's called a victory lap. I've already won. Except this time, it's not straining. It's not pushing. It's not pedal to the metal. It's not paying attention to all the ways he could go off track. It's enjoying the ride. Oh, I've won. Do you know Jesus Christ has won? And in some way, somehow, I don't know what it looked like, but he took a victory lap. And here, here's what Peter says about this. He, he's talking about Noah. In the ark, it, only a few people, eight in all, they were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. He's not saying the act of baptism saves you. He's not saying going under water means anything Uh, for your eternal salvation other than as a symbol. He says this, symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not going under water does anything. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It's a symbol of the new heart you have, the new mind you have as a new creation in him. It saves you by the resurrection of this and this alone. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So listen, he says, no one in his family, they were saved. They weren't saved by somebody coming in, meeting them up. They weren't saved by just a some easy path. They were saved through water. Water that rose up and buried their old life. Buried what they had before, buried who they were before. And eventually it went down enough that the ark landed on a mountain. They walked out into new resurrection life. He says it's kind of like you and Jesus. As you follow the path of your Savior through suffering, he went through suffering to bring you back to God. Your path is a similar path. You, however, are already saved. For you, however, the victory has already been won. And you know that because he has won, you know the end of the story. And he says, when you get baptized, it's a symbol of this. It's a symbol that you know the end of the story. It's a symbol of all all that Jesus has done in you and for you. He went to the cross to buy you back to God. And when you said yes to him, you said, yes, I'm yours completely. You were Lord of my life. And he made you a new creature that day forward, a new creation in him. Not perfect, but beginning to live out by the grace of God who you already are in him. Peter says, "You know what you get? You get the same thing Christ did. You get a victory lap. Before heaven. before heaven, you can take a victory lap. Anybody want to take a victory lap? You can take a victory lap. If you, if you haven't already, you can take a victory lap. It's this. It's coming forward along with one or two other believers, and it's saying, "I testify." You're telling me your story. I testify that Jesus has done this for me. He went to the cross for me. He bought me back to himself. And my life has been completely changed because of him. And you testify that he is your Lord and Savior. And then those two people, brothers or sisters in the Lord, grab you and they do something really scary. They lower you backwards. Underneath the water. Maybe they sprinkle it over your heads. That'd be okay too. But we let's go with the scary stuff. They lower you under the water. It's a symbol of dying to yourself because that's what it is. When you come to Jesus, you're laying aside everything else, all your old way of living, all your old way of trying to do things in your way, all your, old, your way of trying to be Lord of your own life. You're laying that all, of, all aside and you're walking the way he walked. You are dying with Christ. So they put you under the water as a symbol of that, and isn't it a good thing it doesn't end there? They bring you back up because Jesus rose again. They bring you back up as a symbol of the resurrection life you now have in Him. Yes, good stuff is coming in eternity, but an abundant life is available even now, even in this, even now. And so the symbol you get right now before you go home to heaven, the the victory lap you get to take is baptism. So baptism is this. It's an opportunity to celebrate Christ's victory for us. It's an opportunity to point all of your life to him before others in your life. Have you done that? I want to encourage you to do that if you haven't. And we have an opportunity coming up As the worship team comes back out, I just want to point to Sunday, April 16th. It's the Sunday after Easter. We're going to have baptisms in service. In service of both the 9 and the 11 service. If you have not taken your victory lap, come join us. (laughs) It is good walking with Jesus. It's fun taking a victory lap. And you can take that because he has already won the victory for you. So Sunday, April 16th, we're going to be here at the 9 and 11 service. And we're going to have baptism services here before the body. And there will be a message and all of that stuff too. But like we're going to walk together and enjoy taking a victory lap and celebrate others taking their victory lap for all that Christ has done for us. You can email connect at shrewsbury.org. You can sign up in the lobby for that. But listen. We walk following Jesus Christ, and he won. He won. So I I don't know what you're walking through today. I don't know how you walked in here this morning, but I pray that you will walk out knowing that he has won. And he invites us to share that victory in our lives. Let's pray for a minute, and then we're going to worship one more time. Lord God, we thank you for the victory. Jesus, we thank you for your suffering, for your submission to your Father God, for the ways that you have gone before us, Lord. I thank you that you did it all for a purpose to buy us back to you. And so that those of us who are in Christ, the battle's won. We're yours. There's nothing better to be Lord, we can't thank you enough, but we're going to try. We're going to keep thanking you for all that you have done. God, I pray that we would walk out of this place not just not just reconciled to you, but revived in you. And not just revived in you, but remade, transformed into who you've always been intended us to be. God, help us take steps this week to follow you in this walk of submission that you walked, in this walk of sacrifice that you walked, so that we might shine for others. We praise you, Lord, for all that you have done. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Grace family, would you stand to your feet and let's worship him.